Impact of Influence, the tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths that they are linked to. Hello, friend. So grateful you're joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Matt Harris and Seton Tucker. Check our Facebook page out, Murdoch Podcast, and also MurdochPodcast.com. Seton, we want to start with giving a shout out. Yes, we want to give a shout out to Kristen, who is currently undergoing cancer treatment at ND Anderson, and we wish her well and keep up the fight. And we are so uh, grateful that you uh, listen to us. And we now want to move into the latest on Eddie Smith since our last episode. Not much to say except for Eddie's out. Yes, he has been released from jail. And we've heard there are concerns for his safety. Right. I mean, he's been cooperating with authorities, according to his attorneys. So we hope that he has some safety precautions in place. Now, uh, Alec Murdoch, who we know was indicted last week, that indictment was unsealed this past Tuesday at the time that this uh, podcast is dropping. Uh, And one of the things in there in the indictment was illegal activity, including a, quote, distribution network for the painkiller oxycodone. They did not specify any of the other possible crimes of prosecutors. Both men charged with possessing, manufacturing, distributing narcotics. And this is the 16th indictment against Murdoch on charges from lying to police and trying to arrange his own death, stealing money from clients. This uh, comes from the North State Journal. The distribution network thing is pretty intense. They're setting it up because Alec had more than his own personal use of oxycodone. Right. And also who might be implicated in this network? All kinds of, who knows what names may come out. Now we want to also acknowledge an anniversary, a sad one. Yes, so this week is the anniversary of Stephen Smith's death. So, you know, obviously the the family is still searching for answers. Uh, We know that the investigation into his death has been reopened based on some information that was received in the investigation of Maggie and Paul's death. Right. And uh, the, the date, July 8th, 2015, when, when Stephen Smith was killed. Now, because of the Stephen Smith uh, anniversary and the fact that Gloria Satterfield's body is being exhumed, we thought it'd be a good time to bring in an expert forensic pathologist that could answer some questions we have. Let's give you a little reminder about the Gloria Satterfield case before we get to our doctor. The 2018 death of Gloria Satterfield, now remember, she was the Murdoch family housekeeper and nanny for years, decades, and there are questions about Murdoch's family's involvement with the death of Gloria Satterfield, and this past September, SLED said it was investigating Satterfield's death because the Hampton County coroner, Angie Topper, put in a request to have that done because... She says the coroner's office wasn't notified. Yes. In in February of 2018. And now five years later, we're looking at exhuming her body. Because no autopsy was done. And we want to find out exactly what happened with that. And uh, we have the death certificate. We're going to work on getting some of those questions answered. But that's the basic setup to this. Again, remember, she fell. And then it was a few weeks later that she died. But no autopsy was done. Her body's going to be exhumed. We are happy to be joined by Dr. 
Alfredo Walker, forensic pathologist, corner Eastern Ontario Regional Forensic Pathology Unit. And he is also holds an academic appointment of assistant professor in the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine of the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Ottawa. Vice chair of the Department of Palm and director of education, lead trainer in the forensic pathology and the anatomical pathology residency program. Good day, Dr. Walker. Good afternoon. So glad you're here. Uh, so uh, we'll start with some general questions. What are some common reasons that bodies are exhumed? So first and foremost, it's my pleasure to be part of this podcast. Thank you. And I, I will try to assist as much as I can. <laughs> exhumations, uh, exhumation autopsies in forensic pathology, they are a rarity as opposed to being a, a, a common occurrence. The average forensic pathologist would probably go through their entire career without ever having had opportunity to be involved in an exhumation or exhumation autopsy. I have been a forensic pathologist for the last 16 years, and I've never been involved in an exhumation. The reasons uh, behind the performance of uh, exhumation, they're just about four or five reasons. One, first and foremost, is if there's need to remove an entire graveyard cemetery or part of it, then those bodies will be dug up, they would be exhumed, and reburied somewhere else, but of course, they would not be subjected to a post-mortem examination if it's simply for removal of a graveyard. With respect to exhumation autopsies, things like if there's new information which has come to light that points towards criminal culpability, then an exhumation autopsy may be indicated for whatever allegation is laid be it a poisoning, you know, some sort of subtle homicidal manner. Civil litigation purposes, so industrial accidents, other types of accidents, road traffic collision type deaths. And lastly, for historical slash academic slash anthropological interest. Those are the main reasons that bodies are exhumed and under which exhumation autopsies will be performed. Dr. Walker, explain what happens to a body immediately after death. A dead body goes through a spectrum of what we call normal postmortem changes uh, before decomposition sets in. So the normal postmortem changes starts off with uh, cooling uh, of a body, so loss of core body temperature. Uh, part of that uh, postmortem change as well, you get the onset of rigor mortis, stiffening of the body as a result of the progressive loss of the energy molecule, ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is needed to relax muscles, as well as you get pooling uh, of blood in the skin and in the organs under the effect of gravity. So those are the standard post-mortem changes that occur in any body, any dead body, before decomposition sets in. So is there a time frame where you can get valuable information from an exhumation of a body? And if so, what factors come into play? When you say at what point a body can no longer uh, be you know, you can't get any significant amount of information. The state of preservation is determined by whether the body is embalmed or not. And embalming is infusion of uh, different uh, fluids 
things like formaldehyde, alcohols, etc., into the body to preserve the tissues, as well as the environment in which the body is buried. So sandy soil, soil that has good drainage, is going to allow for better and longer preservation uh, of a body compared to very waterlogged soil in acidic acidic conditions, which is going to hasten the decompositional process, the putrefactive process. So there are many factors that affect decompositional changes, and there is no one formula that one could use either retrospectively or even prospectively to determine what will be the state uh, of a particular body after set period of time or what was, you know, its state six months ago, three months ago. There are just too many facts. So what part does embalming play into the preservation of a body? I am not an expert on embalming. I, <laughs> I know nothing about the science of embalming other than what I told you. So as with everything, it depends on, on, on quality, how well it's done. I mean, this is probably not the best analogy, but if you think of embalming a body as akin to uh, curing uh, a piece of pork to produce harm, you know, pork that's well cured, well preserved, you know, would last longer mm-hmm. than, you know, True. pork which isn't that well preserved. And, you know, it's probably not the appropriate analogy. No, but I get it. So now let's talk about the 2018 death of Gloria Satterfield. It is said that she fell or had some sort of fall event in the Murdoch family home. The death certificate says that the manner of death was natural and no autopsy was conducted. So... Doctor, what kinds of deaths lead to an immediate investigation and an autopsy? So different jurisdictions have different laws relating, related to medical legal death investigation. In most jurisdictions, any death that is defined in law as either being sudden, unexpected, unexplained, violent or unnatural in nature. And when we say unnatural, we are talking about accident, suicide, or homicide. Uh, Those are the types of cases that need to be uh, investigated. And as part of the investigation, uh, post-mortem examination may be requested. So the types of cases are normally specified in law according to the jurisdiction. In the United States, you have two types of medical legal death investigation systems uh, which overlap to give you a third type. So the two basic types are the medical examiner system in which the medical examiner uh, is a forensic pathologist, so a medical doctor who has undertaken postgraduate training in anatomical pathology and anatomical pathology deals with the diagnosis of uh, disease uh, in living patients, who then subspecializes in forensic pathology, with forensic pathology concentrating on the causes and manners of death. So, in a medical examiner system, the law gives the medical examiner the right or the jurisdiction to take charge of certain categories of deaths same, most times it's the same categories that I just alluded to, sudden, 
unexpected, unexplained, violent, or unnatural deaths. And that person determines whether an autopsy is, request, is required to certify cause and manner, or if an external-only examination of the body, or if the body, the case, just doesn't fall under his or her purview. The second medical legal death investigation system is the coroner system. And dependent on where you are in the U.S., where you are in the world, the coroner may or may not be a medical doctor. Uh, it may not be a professional person. For instance, in Canada, we have provinces and territories. I am in the province of Ontario. We have a coroner system. All our coroners are medical doctors, not necessarily forensic pathologists, but medical doctors of any specialty, family medicine, pediatrics, orthopedic surgery, etc. In contrast, the British Columbia, where the coroner to be a coroner, you simply need to have attained the age of maturity, be that 18 or 21 years old, and have a government-issued ID. So at one point in time, the chief coroner in British Columbia was a truck driver. No disrespect wow. to the job of right. being a truck driver, but you can see that someone who has no professional background, no training mm -hmm. in medicine, no wow. formal training in medical legal death investigation, being in charge of medical legal death investigation, sometimes in very contentious cases, such as deaths in custody, is not going to be ideal. And then in some places like Los Angeles County, the chief medical examiner also functions as coroner. So you have a hybrid system. So actually, Dr. Walker in South Carolina, we have the coroner system. And we had the York County coroner on, Sabrina Gass, not too long ago. And she told us it didn't used to be the way it is now. It used to be just an elected position in many places. And we could have had a trucker, for all I know. Yeah, no medical background was required. But now, uh, I think 2017, maybe even earlier, they passed a law. But anyway, you have to have a four-year degree and a one-year of experience in death investigation with a law enforcement agency, coroner, or medical examiner agency. And from the York County government website, the main task of the coroner's office is to determine both the medical and legal causes for deaths with priority focused on sudden, suspicious, as well as deaths that occur for no apparent reason. I don't know, have you done an autopsy on anybody who uh, fell downstairs or had a fall? Yeah, that's, that's my bread and butter. Okay, good. If someone dies of, 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 or a fall is placed part in the death, can you tell that they fell or they were pushed? Or, or what are you looking for? Okay, so not every fall results in death from injury. There are some natural disease phenomena which cause people to collapse uh, agonally, so uh, just before they die, as part of the death process or the dying process. That does not mean that the death resulted from an injury sustained in the fall. So, so someone who has ruptured berry aneurysm, uh, which is an abnormal blood vessel in one of the arteries in the base of the brain, uh, that ruptures and they collapse, they lose consciousness, they would collapse to the ground and die. They would have minor blunt force injuries, abrasions on the bony prominences, the forehead, on the eyebrow, uh, the cheekbone, probably the nose. But if they didn't sustain any traumatic uh, brain injury, uh, or any traumatic 
you know, injury to the torso, refractures, bleeding into chest cavities, etc. We cannot ascribe their cause of death directly to their fall because they fell as a result of dying from another process as opposed to dying as a result of the fall. So not everyone who falls has the fall as the underlying reason for their death. So that's the first thing you need to understand. Secondly, for those cases in which a fall results in significant injury to explain death, they tend to occur in a state of intoxication or in some, uh, you know, some otherwise explainable circumstances. So someone deliberately jumps from a building to take their own life. They develop a multiplicity of blunt force injuries, skull fractures, intracranial bleeding, subdural hemorrhage, epidural hemorrhage, you know, fractures of their ribs, uh, lacerations of their lungs, you know, collections of blood in the chest cavities, collection of air in the chest cavities. We can directly relate their injuries as a result of the fall. And if they died from the injuries, then you can relate their death to the effects of the, of the fall. Typically, if someone falls, most times the, you are really concerned with traumatic head injury, blunt force head injury. And that's where you get skull fractures, space occupying collections of blood in the subdural space, otherwise known as subdural hematoma. In the epidural space, epidural hematoma, you may get contusions on the undersurfaces of the lungs, uh, sorry, of the brain, the temporal lobe, the frontal lobe. And we use those, those combinations of injuries to determine whether this person fell, impacted their head on the ground, most times the occipital part of the head, the back of the head, and developed those head injuries. There is no way to pathologically differentiate someone who is pushed down a flight of stairs from someone who trips and falls in an accidental manner or trips and stumbles, trips and falls from intoxication with alcohol and or drugs. Hmm. Would you be able to tell the difference if someone was hit over the head with something versus someone who sustained a fall? Would, would those two things look different? They should dependent on what implement has been used to affect uh, the impact injury to the head. So if they beat him over the head with a step, then it might look like they fell. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, uh, this is just—I just was curious about that. Yeah, and I wonder—is the autopsy the be-all, end-all on your ruling or manner or cause of death? In forensic pathology, the post-mortem examination is just one of the data sets that we use to help us certify cause and manner. And if I can use the clinical analogy of when you present to your, um, your family doctor, you don't sit there, stay at the family doctor, and that person miraculously gets to you know, read your mind and figure out what's wrong. You mm -hmm. have to tell that person what symptoms you've been experiencing, uh, what you've noticed, uh, et cetera. In like manner, in forensic pathology, we are dependent on getting a summary of the circumstances of death from the coroner, if we're in a coroner's system, the medical legal death investigator, if we're in a medical examiner's system, the investigating police, 
independent witnesses, CCTV footage, etc. So we go through that stepwise process of getting as much information related to the circumstances of a death, getting as much information about the decedent's medical history, the social history. Do they do they have a history of having uh, syncopal attacks, fainting episodes as a result of you know some underlying heart condition? Are they known to be a you know a very bad alcoholic who's always intoxicated and tripping and falling over? So that gives us a flavor of how to approach the postmortem. You cannot certify cause and manner of death accurately by just looking at a dead body in the vast majority of cases and doing the anatomical examination, the postmortem examination totally oblivious to what the circumstances related to the debt are. Everything has to be taken from a holistic perspective. I know when they rule on a debt, there's a, a difference between uh, the cause of death and the manner of death. Can you explain? Cause of death is the underlying disease process, injury, drug, or toxin that started off the chain of abnormal bodily functions to result in death. Manner of death is quasi-judicial statement that is made to classify the death. And there are five manners. Natural, meaning that death was 100% due to natural disease. Accident, death occurred as a result of uh, some incident that was potentially avoidable. Suicide, which means that death resulted from intentional self-harming, so that person deliberately set out to take their own life, or homicide, which simply means death at the hands of another. Homicide in cause and manner of death certification is not related to homicide in the criminal uh, judicial system. Homicide simply means death at the hands of another. Not all deaths which are classified as homicide means that somebody will go to court facing a charge of murder uh, in whatever degree or manslaughter. Let me give you an example. The states that have the death penalty, be it by hanging, electrocution, uh, lethal injection, uh, when a convicted individual uh, is executed by the state, executed legally, they die, be it by hanging, by lethal injection, by electrocution, they, that's an unnatural death. So based on the law, it would fall under the purview of the coroner or the medical examiner. So it goes for medical legal post-mortem examination. The cause of death will be electrocution, hanging, or whatever cocktail of drugs were injected. The manner of death would be homicide because uh -huh. it's death at the hands of another. Does it mean that the person who pulled the trap door, who flipped the switch on the machine to electrocute them, or who injected them would be charged and hauled before the court? No, because those are judicial execution. So that's a prime example of where a manner of death of homicide would not result in a prosecution. Understand? Yes, I do get it. And you left out the old firing squad thing, I think, because not many places have it, but South Carolina has the firing squad back, although... Very controversial. And just last month, South Carolina's highest court issued a temporary stay 
on blocking the firing squad execution of Richard Bernard Moore that was supposed to take place. But that's neither here nor there. Now, Gloria Satterfield, the manner of death on her death certificate says natural. The cause of death, Seton. There are two causes of death listed. The first is acute subdermal hemorrhage, which my understanding is that's a brain bleed. And the other one is ischemic CVA, which I've been told is a stroke caused by loss of blood flow to the brain or portion of the brain. A subdural hemorrhage yeah. is never natural. But a stroke is a natural cause of death. Seton, let's go to uh, a couple of Stephen Smith questions and we'll uh, wrap it up here. So Stephen Smith was a young man who was found dead in the middle of the road in 2015. The pathologist ruled that it was a hit and run, but the lead investigator disagreed with that decision based on lack of evidence, you know, no road debris and that sort of thing. So what would you look for in a case like this? So again, we go through the surprise process. What is the background circumstances? What uh, is known about the investigation? The, you know, this, the, the circumstances under which this body was found. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the decedent's medical and social history? Was there any plausible reason for them to have been on that road at that particular time? You know, is there a significant reason to believe that they were struck by a car? If they weren't struck by a car and they have blunt force injuries, the alternative uh, is that were they assaulted and the body dumped there. So the, the medical legal death investigation process is a team process. The forensic pathologist is not the only member of, of that process. It's, it's a team process. And as I said, if we find a body on the road uh, which has been hit by a vehicle traveling at high speed, be it a car, uh, a motorbike, uh, a truck, whatever, we will have severe blunt force uh, injuries most times all over the body. If the body is dragged, then you know there's a rollover and the body is dragged, then we will look for the what we call the road rash injuries, which is dragging abrasions, uh, etc. So there's no one thing that will mm-hmm. allow you to say that this person died because they were hit by a car. There would be pointers in one direction uh, or the other. So it, you know, just the point I'm trying to make is that it's impossible to give you a one size fits all mm-hmm. answer with respect to what you, you know, looking at a body in isolation to say, yes, this definitely would have been, you know, hit by a car versus some other modality. Uh, pedestrian crossing the road who is struck by a car, you tend to get bumper injuries uh, on the shins, on the legs. At post-mortem, we measure those. So if we see overt bumper injuries in the forms of bruises, abrasions, fractures uh, of the tibia at the same level, uh, again, that will, that will help us, uh, etc. So I think the important thing for us to realize is, you know, you talked about a team and this doesn't appear to have been a team. It seemed to be a lot of conflict and people not agreeing on the cause of death. Especially the investigators who were saying there's no evidence of skid marks or a mirror being torn off or that sort of thing. And they were saying to the uh, medical examiner, you need to take these things into consideration. And they're saying she was like, I'm not, basically. 
Yeah, I mean, they definitely it's well documented that there was con- there was conflict between the pathologist and the investigator. So there's been rumors that it may have been a bat that hit Stephen Smith, not a side view mirror. Doctor, can you tell the difference in injuries of someone who's hit with a bat and someone who's hit by a truck going by? Well, a truck traveling at a uh, hundred kilometers per hour that sideswipes somebody with a mirror and you know forcefully throws them onto the asphalt, you could sustain you know a significant uh, blunt force head injury in, term, in terms of skull fractures, subdural, uh, epidural, subarachnoid hemorrhages, etc. So just from the mirror itself, no, but it's the effect of that energy transfer that puts you in contact uh, with the ground that can cause significant injury. How fast the car is going, whatever, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, as I said, these are not, uh, these scenarios cannot be simplified to say, well, you know, it's one formula, and you use that formula. Each case has to be taken by its own merit. It's a combination of the pathological assessment, uh, the experience and expertise of the pathologist. Dr. Walker, you've been amazing. You've been uh, very kind to give us your time. I know you've got a lot of bodies to chop up, so we'll uh, <laughs> let you do your thing. I really appreciate it. You've been very informative. Thanks okay, much. no problem. Thanks much, Dr. Walker. Thank you. All right, cheers. Bye. Uh, cheers. Bye. <laughs> uh, Seton, good episode. And here's a uh, comment from Laura in New Mexico. Dear Matt and Seton, your podcasts are always so informative with the different ways you and your guests help explain South Carolina and its laws. Thank you for the podcast about Gloria's gift for taking us into the auditorium and allowing us to be part of her community and to know Gloria better. I appreciate all the work SC podcasters and reporters are doing to shed light on certain injustices of justice because that light will shine on other states like mine. Keep up the good work. And thanks again for letting us share in that special moment of the unveiling of Gloria's gift, a gift indeed. Thank you, Laura. And Seton, another comment? Yeah, so we had one on our Facebook page. We got a lot of positive feedback on our last episode where we had a linguist on. And Russell points out that splitting hairs, but it is a Southern dialect, not accent. And actually, that made me think about it. He is right. So we appreciate you pointing that out. He, we talked, right? he talked about dialect versus accent, I yes, think, in and the episode. I think we missed- Some we, of it didn't stick. We mixed it up in our title. <laughs> which, is, which is what happens- in school all the time, or what happened in school with me all the time, kind of mixing things up and not getting it exactly right. I'll be better. Uh, right. They can reach out to us where? You can reach out to us on our Facebook page, which is Murdoch Podcast, or on our website, which is MurdochPodcast.com. Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. Always grateful. We'll talk soon. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery 
and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.